Uh, thank you, Gary. Thanks to everybody. I'm glad to be here again. Uh, this is one of my favorite rooms. Uh, it seems like they cleaned it up since the last time I was here. And uh, I couldn't take my eyes off that green door. I mean, what is, seriously, we need to, some wag will come up with a name, I know, and put it. Um, don't look behind that door. Um, okay, what I'm going to do is um, read a story that's going to serve my purposes as a teacher, uh, and if there's a moment afterward, we can talk a little bit if there's questions or whatever. So the story takes about 28 or 30 minutes. It's a story called The Tahoe Curse, and I was going to write a story about the secret code, the real lyrics of Louie Louie. I was thinking about that song and everybody, you know, the scurrilous lyrics, as if. I mean, there isn't, I mean, think of all the songs we have now. My son has some downloaded songs which uh, should be in code. Um, and then, no, I lost that part, and then a woman at the L.A. Book Festival set, asked me a question, and I've had, I've had all kinds of questions over the years, but she asked me a question I'd never had before. She said, as a writer, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, you've done that. When are you going to stop? <laughs> and I, it sort of scared me, um, so I'd never thought about it before. And I'm not thinking about it now, but it just gave me pause. And then I was also thinking at the same time about somebody came up with a curse, and I had studied for a while, a long time ago, 30 years ago, the curse of the mummy's tombs, the Egyptian problem with all the British explorers who went into the pyramids. And I like a curse. I like a real good curse. And um, then I was, the last part of this is that I was at, uh, I was new to California and I taught at Squaw Valley, which is adjacent to Lake Tahoe. And I was looking at a map and I don't know very much about California. And I've also resolved kind of never to know very much about California. But, um, in Lake Tahoe, which is an unbelievable lake, if you ever see it, I mean, it's breathtaking. You, I kind of have to stop every time I see it and move aside and take a minute and get myself together because it's beautiful and it's huge and very deep and mysterious. And it's where they bent California. California comes down and it bends, and that bend is in the lake somewhere. So when you're out in the middle in a boat, you're not sure which state all these things came together, and I started writing the story. I wrote the first paragraph, and then I was committed. Uh, this story is called The Tahoe Curse. The October night many years ago when the great rock band, Blue Iron, dropped into Lake Tahoe in their Cessna Twin shortly after takeoff from the resort's airstrip, killing all four members of the band, we were playing our regular weekend gig at Benny's Casino. It was a chilly night, and we were in the lounge. If it were a summer, we'd have been out on the deck, and there's a chance that we would have seen something of the tragedy. They recovered all the bodies in the days following, but the plane, in two big parts, spun downward in the icy water. It was said it took two weeks for the pieces to reach the bottom. Whenever we played Benny's through the years, even after they changed the name, we'd look out over the lake knowing that Travis Kepler's drum kit was out there, along with the band's three vintage Fender Stratocasters, half a mile down in the dark. Blue Iron was a big band for us when we started because they were also from Washoe County, three brothers and a friend, and they hit it big while playing the same club circuit we did on the eastern slope of the Sierras, the same 20 towns, the same fairs and festivals, and then they suddenly hit it big and were the darlings of VH1 and Concerts Arama. We never said it aloud, but we always thought it would happen like that for us. And now we had another unspoken issue. When do you just stop? 
The question has been circling for the last year as we did three gigs a month in Reno, Carson, and up at, lake, up at the lake in Benny's Casino, which is now called 135 degrees because that is the angle the state line makes out in the middle of Lake Tahoe. The question disappears when the calls come in. Julian, the manager of the Gold Bug in Carson, would call, or any of the three places in Reno. When someone calls, you still get the rush. They give you the dates and the terms, and even when the money goes down, which it has been doing for three years, it's still a rush. We've got a gig. You put it in the calendar, and it sort of glows there like a golden promise. There isn't a band that doesn't feel it. No one has ever said, you know what, not really, we can't make it. I mean, you make it. You miss your birthday or your wife's birthday, and you go up to the lake and set up on the deck at Benny's Casino, and you play the gig. Even after it gets old, it never gets old. It stops paying so much, and then you're just breaking even, and you stop clipping the ad with your name, the Deer Devils, out of the weekly papers, and your girlfriends, who are now your wives, stop coming. They stopped early, really, unless it was a special trip or there was a hotel package involved. Even Dawson's new girlfriend stopped coming, though that, may, that, though that may have been the attitude certain girls have about drummers. Some days when we play Benny's, we go up early in the day and borrow his boat and fish out in the middle of the lake, not knowing if we're in Nevada or California. Sometimes we talk about Blue Iron and their success now below us in the water. There's a lot of stuff on the bottom of Lake Tahoe, mysteries and mysteries, stories for a hundred fishing trips. Everyone remembers the dinner cruise that went down in 1950 when 75 people, including the great guitarist, Hickam McClue, who invented all the double slide moves on the 12-string, were lost, not a body recovered. Someone lowered the auto ramp at midnight on a Saturday in July, and the two-tier steamer slipped under the water in 10 minutes, dead center. There's a famous photograph of the ship sitting upright on the lake bottom, and you can still read the name on the frame between the smokestacks, Treble Clef. It was taken from an unmanned submarine a few years ago. Everett always says that they danced all the way down. Dawson and I look at him like we always have. He's a poet. Our fishing trips were good outings. My wife Ramona would send us off with a lunch with her jars of lemon iced tea, and Dawson and Everett and I would get a little sunburn maybe, and there were days, though we never said it, when we knew the fishing and an afternoon of stories was a better reason for the trip than the three hours we'd play at Benny's. After gigs now, we get home at three in the morning after driving carefully down the mountain, and park the van, leaving it loaded with the equipment, and you split the cash in the dash light. It's always cash now, never a contract and a check. And Dawson gets in his car and he drives over, drives home, and Everett gets on his scooter and cruises over to the new subdivision, Sage Park, where he's bought a house he's holding onto by his shirt tails. And I make sure the van is locked and go into my house and I sit in the kitchen and tear a piece off a baguette and eat it in the dark with a glass of milk. One thing that changes is the way that you handle the money. After the gig tonight, two sets in front of 40 people, Benny comes out and empties the cover jar and sorts it with a finger, counting $305. It always comes out odd like that. And then he folds out four more 20s from his pocket, and I turn away, and Dawson tries to push the bills back to him. And Benny says, no way, two or three times, and puts the money in, and puts the money in, in a manila envelope and shakes our hands. Done. At home later, when we divide the money, we all try to push that odd 20 to the other guys. Finally, Everett says, I liked it better when we grabbed for that bill. Old men push money at each other. 
We got old, Dawson said. It happens to the best of them. Mick Jagger's a hundred. I'd like to see him push money at his mates, Everett said. It's the same as this, Dawson said. They stand around their van after midnight and count the rumpled bills. Keith Richards smokes as he counts his share. Good night. We were a good cover band. We could do the Eagles so that you won an autograph. But we wanted to do our own work. We wanted to make a mark. Everett was a superlative songwriter, and he probably wrote 50 songs of all kinds. And we had a lot of success with the ballads. And we made four CDs, and they paid for themselves and then stopped. None of his songs broke through. We heard our songs on the radio a dozen times, but a couple of those were at KUSP after we'd called in and when our old friend Skinny Johnny Mitchell was still the DJ. Still, it is great to be in a van with kids you've known for too many years and to hear the drum intro to The Longest Tattoo in the World, which is one of Everett's best songs, as it starts out to be funny, but then turns with the chorus. We always had a joke about songwriting because we knew that Everett was very fine, a poet. And at one rehearsal years ago, Dawson was singing Horse With No Name and stopped and said, Everett, you need to know that anything you write ever in all of your lifetime is going to be better than this platinum curiosity. <laughs> what a crazy song. He's right, I said. Even the kids in junior high would know to name the horse and find some new rhymes. Everett looks sad. Platinum, he said. Plants and birds and rocks and things, Dawson said. They should have named the plants, too. I put my share of tonight's take, which is $170, in the utility drawer in the kitchen, house money for the week, and I shower the cigarette smoke off and crawl into bed beside Ramona, who is sleeping, and the question comes into the room. When do you stop? It's not your real job, and it's not a hobby. When do you stop? It really comes up on Sunday when we unload the van. We help Dawson pack his traveling drum kit into the tough shed beside my garage, and we hand the cords and stow the speakers in a way we've done for 19 years. Someone, Everett or Dawson, inevitably says, would it be cool if we could just leave it all in the van and have a dedicated van for our gear? And then we talk about what we would paint on the side of the van because Everett and Dawson have deep differences about our logo such as it is. We all agreed on the name immediately, which we stole from the way Everett's mother pronounced daredevils. But Everett thinks we should emphasize the devils, and Dawson wants the deer. So our matchbooks and cards have these little Cupid-like guys playing guitars. It would be nice if we could leave the gear in the van. It would be nice if we didn't have to hang it in the shed for five or six weeks at a time, long enough for spiders to get into everything. But then it would have been nice to strike gold, with any of the songs we've written and put out there. One gold song and our wonderful roadies would carry the gear from the truck while we finished up our Pellegrinos in the silver motor coach. We've had a lot of nice things, of course. Every band does. You walk into a big bar room at the edge of Carson City and a dozen kids come up and know all about you and all night long they stand in front of the stage sweating and delirious and they sing the lyrics, every word, wall to wall. And sometimes there were big checks. But the best is not anything out of the big book and rock and roll. The best part of being a band is why we started in the first place. I met Everett in the sixth grade, and he played me some of his CDs, which were all over the place, Pink Floyd to hip-hop. And we saw we weren't just having the music like some accessory to being young. But we wanted it. We wanted to be part of it. I'm not sure how you say it, but we wanted to connect. 
We got cheap new electric guitars. And then a year later, when Dawson moved into our neighborhood with his drums, we bought good used electric guitars, and we started to practice. Three kids, Everett's basement. This is how you know we were committed. We didn't even tell anybody. There's a chance in junior high to say it sometime, at a dance or just in the halls. You know, we've got a band. We didn't. Nobody knew. Dawson said it for us. What do you guys want? You want to work on it until we can take it out and try it for real? Or do you want to just start right now as kids and play at the assemblies and the eighth grade talent show and piss this thing away? Plus, it was fun. We didn't need an audience. Everett's mom called us the musicians as we came and went. Ah, here are the musicians. And she meant it. And later she called us the daredevils, pronouncing it deer. And we had a name. We had our name for almost two years before we took it out of the house. Lord, there were times. In a band, if you really tried, you get some times. Everett and Dawson would jam in the interlude in the song, I Heard Your Secret, as I went out beyond anything I knew on the lead guitar, and it was all like a precision airplane show or one long free fall, no way not to crash in the blizzard, and then suddenly coming out in a float so safe and solid, and my arms would run with chills, and early in our career as dear devils, we learned that music thereby was its own true thing. There were times playing when Dawson would come out of a short drum solo and heave the song to me like a person throwing a knife when it is a sharp knife big as your arm and you throw it fast and you know that it will be caught by the handle so that the silver blade flashes everyone's reflection. And I would turn and throw it to Everett who would catch it with his eyes closed. And what we did, we were good. We grew up, we took jobs. I started teaching history at Pythagoras Junior High, and frankly, I love it. Dawson is district manager in a highway department for the great state of Nevada, and Everett is a chiropractor. For a while, every single bit of it was fun, and we kept good books, thinking we'd break through at some point and make enough money every year to quit our jobs and go out and play, but it never happened. The best year we had, we made $74,000, and that was playing five times a month, and we had two big shows, one at the Silver Saddle Annex in Reno, and the other was the Washoe County Fair, where they paid us eight grand for two sets. We still make money, and the money helps. This year, we're headed for 19 or 20,000, and even divided three ways, and after taxes, that helps at home. But I don't think any of us really wants to quit his job. Afternoon on Sunday, I look up from the quizzes I'm correcting as I hear Dawson's little pickup arrive at my house. He and Everett get out, good scouts, to help unload and pack things away for three weeks until we drive out to Blister for their town centennial. On these Sundays, we used to go in and have coffee with Ramona and tell stories from the night before, the things that happened in bars that used to seem interesting when we were new at this, some woman slapping a man, or some drunk climbing up to sing along with Everett's song, Blue as a Bruise, or someone, sometimes a man and sometimes a woman, crying hard when we covered Breathe on the Mirror. We can still make people cry, Everett would say. You give me four stiff rum and cokes and make me stay up until midnight inside of Benny's with that crowd, and I'll cry without the music, Dawson would say. But, Ramona would say, what about the magic, boys? She heard us talking about the times when we climbed on top of it and soared, making a bonfire of every board in every song, smoke, stars, and staggering ashes. 
Yes, I would say it, or Dawson would say it, or Everett. There with our coffees in the van still waiting to be unloaded. The magic, couple times, music of the absolute spheres. Now it takes us less than an hour working silently to put our equipment away, hanging things on their old hooks and covering it all with the proper covers and locking the door. Anymore, the guys don't stay for coffee. Everett says it. You guys want to hang it up? No one has said it aloud before, though we fished around it, and now we all know for gorilla certain what he's talking about. It's as if we've been stepping over it to put the instruments away. Dawson stands still and then slumps against his truck. I don't know. What have we got in the book? Nothing, I say. We could play the centennial at Blister. That's in three weeks. That town has been there a hundred years. So have we. Well, let's book it, Everett says. Let's make the decision on the way back. One last gig, right? Sounds good, I say. Call me when you get back from Burning Man, I tell Dawson. You sure you guys don't want to go? Yeah, I missed my chance, I tell him. I'm already burned. Dawson starts in on his value of Burning Man speech, a beautiful ditty right out of the golden annals of yesteryear. And I hold up my hand. Peace, brother. He's right. Art for art. Art for art's sake and people in the world. I've got to teach on Monday. And junior high is like one year-long Burning Man anyway. All the projects and the acting out and the grand and explosive questioning. So for the week, Ramona is watching me. She comes in the den where I'm reading the first papers in the, on the Spanish-American War and watching the Bengals eat the Colts. How do you feel about the end of the band? Well, at least she didn't say end of an era, I tell her. I'm saving that for the shindig up at Blister. Are you going to flip out, she says, without the music? Are you going to go midlife on me? I am midlife, I tell her. The band was the band. We did okay. It's time to let it go. Okay, then, she says. She takes the television remote from my hand and sits across my lap. I loved you before, during, and after. You don't need to be a rock star to have all of me. The way you talk. What? I've always liked it. Things go well at school, and I have to ransom back my grade book from Cecilia Hitchcock and her funny friends. It's a season of student pranks. Junior high kids are amphibian. Some days they live on the land, and some days they crawl back into the ooze. Once you let go of your old notions of chaos, it's sort of fun. My grade book cost me four packages of Twinkies, and when we make the exchange after class, Boyd Marlin says, perfect, Twinkies. Now keep your mouth shut, Mr. Finstall, or we'll tell the vice principal you're passing out Twinkies. Deal, I say. We didn't look in the book, Gloria Nimmer says, a warrior. See you tomorrow. I'm a good teacher. I like American history and I like the kids. If you walk into a junior high, it feels a lot like the suburbs of hell. But if you teach there 15 years, you can feel the melody beneath the riffs. And it's easy. It's a good job. And as a teacher who tries hard, you always have more impact than you sense in any given week. Every term or so, some bright eighth grader will call out, Hey, Mr. Finstall, I heard you were in a band. This is so easy to handle. Yeah, I say. I'm in a band. I can say that sentence so by the time I finish the word I'm, the rumor is demolished. It always gets a laugh and we move on to the Spanish-American War and I'm safe. I'm in a band. Soon, maybe next term, some kid will call that out and I know I'm going to stand there and say, 
I was lead guitarist in the Deer Devils for 19 years, and there were some times when we played in front of almost 4,000 people. Dawson called me at school the next Thursday. I was in class, and we were defining jingoism and talking about the run-up to the Spanish-American War. We'd been investigating the explosion of the USS Maine like a crime, like CSI. I held my hand up for quiet while I took the call. In junior high, when you answer the green wall phone, the class holds its breath, listening for a clue if it's their parents who are on their way over or who have been arrested. We've had both. Where are you? They let you use your cell phone at Burning Man? I'm home. We've got to practice. We who has got to practice exactly what? The band hasn't rehearsed in two years. We haven't put in any of Everett's new songs since then. I got a song. I've got a song that's going to change your life, Dawson said. You've called me at school. Change your life starting now. I look around the room at my teeming scholars. He may be right. Good, Dawson. I didn't even care who heard what now. I'll see you at six. Five. I'll go over and set up ahead of time. Happy school. When I hung up, Javier Mazzano said, Mr. Finstall, you're in a band, aren't you? I looked over my class. They were good kids, all of them fighting over what happened on February 15, 1898, in Havana Harbor. Yes, I said, I'm in a band. When I got home, Dawson had backed Ramona's Mercury out of the garage and was there behind the drums talking to Ramona, who had dragged out a kitchen chair. We haven't played out here for a while, I said. Is Everett coming? It was time to clean the garage, restack everything, and get rid of our electronics boxes so we'd have room for both cars. Whenever it moved into his place with Veronica, he cut all the boxes up and put them in the alley for pickup. You keep the boxes, he said. It's like you're waiting to break up. The only reason that DVD player would go back in the box is if you're moving. And now he and Veronica are engaged. Back to our roots, Dawson said. He was lit. He could be lit, and I'd like that about him through the years. There were times which were extraordinary, and he was the one of us who would say so. Our roots are in Edward Teller Elementary School, I said. You want to go over there? Everett drifted up on his scooter with a flourish and said, Presenting the Deer Devils and their big hit, I Heard Your Secret, which topped out on the charts at number 79 in the year 1997. He's right with that. Greetings, boys. He stood off the machine and set the kickstand. What have you got, Dawson? I wanted Ramona to hear this, Dawson said. She's been here from the get-go. Why, thank you, Dawson. Actually, I met the band in Miss Britain's social studies when we were in seventh grade. She was a good teacher, Everett said. She was, I said. She wrote every assignment in the corner of the blackboard. She had great handwriting. How's yours? Tricky, I said. I print, and my students still have to guess. Dawson had sunburned the corners of his face real good, and they were maroon, as were the caps of his shoulders in his muscle shirt. You wrote a song, Everett said. His voice was a little funny because he'd stopped writing two or three years ago. He was the only one of us who could write. I've got a song. He took some papers from his back pocket and unfolded them. Yellow notebook sheets from Burning Man. The old papers were raggy and about worn out. You got them from the Burning Man, Ramona said. At Burning Man. Good enough, I said. Let's see what they are. Where did you get them, Everett said. From a guy, Dawson said, and then he looked up and made what I would call a brave face. And he added, a sage. Of course, Ramona said, it was the burning man himself. 
No, really, Dawson said, handing the song to me. There was this coffee outpost at the festival. They had Starbucks at Burning Man? Like it. It was green like that, and there was this huge mermaid over the tent, and you walked through her hair, these ropes to get in. It was called Room for Cream. And they had coffee and a couple dozen little stumps where you sat, and like that. Did they sell coffee, or did you have to trade? I used money. There was some trading. You want to hear about this song? We all sat still. The song was a poem about a stranger finding a house in the forest at night and finding a way in, and then in the dark, seeing the things he loves waiting there. At least that's what I could get. The musical notation was penciled between the lines, and the whole thing felt like it was fading away in my hands. So I'm getting my coffee, and a guy comes up to me and says, Luck is everywhere. You can't argue with that, Ramona said. I didn't argue. I said, yes, sir. And he pointed to my tattoo, Dear Devils, where it is on my shoulder. And he said, is that a band? And I said, yes. And I told him about our stuff. Was he naked, Everett said? Was it like that place you went last year where the bicycles and the naked people riding and singing? No, he wasn't. Was the coffee tent full of naked people like that? No. But this guy has a gray beard and no shirt and a tattoo that says wisdom in Chinese characters, right? Everett said. I'm just trying to get a picture. You're just trying to be sarcastic, Dawson said. I don't know what the Chinese characters on his arm said. And he didn't have a beard. He's just a bald guy about 70 or maybe 80, a little more. And what's all this naked talk? When I told you about last year, you seemed interested in civil. What is nudity anyway? Why is it such a big deal? Oh, please, don't give us the nudity talk, I said. We're listening. Just tell the story. Last year, we'd gotten the full program of natural history of nudity and how it leads to world peace and sharing. Do you guys know how many people have seen me naked, Ramona said. This stops the conversation. Seven, including my parents. We all sat there doing the math. For me, it's like 700, Dawson said, because of last year. Exactly, Dawson said, maybe 7,000. When there's a 1,000 people standing by a bonfire naked, it doesn't count as naked anymore. It's not like five or six people naked at a picnic. Naked at a picnic, Everett said. That's worse than naked. It's like double naked. You'd eat there with these naked people? Yes, Ramona said. You'd know them, and you'd eat your lunch with them because it's a picnic. Dawson makes his patient face, and it gives it to me as if I let Ramona run amok at this important meeting, as if I'm in charge of her, which is exactly what I am not. So he gave you this parchment, I said, and do you want us to give it a go? I picked the first two bars on my guitar. Listen, Dawson said, just listen. He said that he had something for me if I could pass the test. If he was naked, where did he keep the papers, Ramona said. <laughs> he wasn't naked, Dawson said, yet. Pass a test, Everett asked. Right, it's the kind of thing people say every half hour at Burning Man. I didn't have one straight conversation that wasn't full of karma. We're all quiet because if one of us picks that up, we're going to get the half hour karma speech, which isn't that bad, but we all know it. And it almost brings Dawson to righteous tears. So what was the test, Dawson asked. Everett retrieved a milk crate and he was tuning his guitar lazily as we listened. I go with him up to his house, his place, his camp, there, at the, and it's a big circle of stones on the ground like dots with two openings, and you have to go in one and you go out the other. In the middle of the circle is his big umbrella stuck in the dirt, and we sat on the two mats under this thing. 
It was in a neighborhood of a lot of circles and umbrellas, maybe 20 of the places. Was there a zodiac sign on his tent, Ramona said. Dawson looked at her. I didn't notice. Ramona said, a lot of times these gurus have the zodiac. So what was the test, I asked again. He says to me, the guy says to me, close your eyes. Did you, Everett said? Yes, Dawson said, it's Burning Man. There's a lot of this stuff. People hugging you out of nowhere, putting stuff in your hand. Speaking French, Ramona said. I'm kidding. So what did he do to you after you closed your eyes? Not a thing. I sat there for about half an hour, maybe more. It wasn't too bad. And then I could tell someone was close to me, and I felt this breath on my face and licking. Someone's licking my face. And I opened my eyes, and it's a spotted dog. And he's licking my face like it's a job. A Dalmatian? No, some, guy, some gray mongrel with a spray of brown spots and a loose leather collar with green beads on it. So you sat there with the dog looking at you? He would lick and then look at me like that? It would look you in the eyes, I said? Sounds lovely, Ramona said. And then the dog turned and went out the door in the stone ring and went off into Burning Man. That was the test? I don't know, I guess. The next thing was the guy comes back, and yes, now he's naked, and he's wearing the green dog collar, and he hands me the papers. So he turned into a dog and then gave you a song. I couldn't help myself. It's like that guy who went into the desert with an unnamed horse. Don't, don't, Everett said. Just don't. Do you want to hear this? Dawson said. He pointed at the weary pages on which the song was written. The guy may or may not have been the dog. His name was Memphis, Venezuela. And he said it had been 60 years, and so the song could come out again. It's been out? Twice, Dawson said. Recorded? No, just played. So if it's good and we can learn it, let's play it up at Blister at our last gig. Right, Dawson said. But there's more, isn't there, Everett said. There is, guys, Dawson said. He took the song back from me carefully in two fingers. If we play this song, we're going to have success beyond any of our dreams. Well, that wouldn't be hard, I said. Is there another standard? <laughs> no, Dawson said, no limit. Really, Everett said, a song that guarantees success. But, Ramona said, but, Dawson said, and he looked at each of us face to face to face. There's a curse on the song, the Tahoe curse. There's a curse on the song, I said. But that's true of a lot of music, right? Does anybody here want coffee? I'll get the coffee, Ramona said. I don't want the curse to get on me. I've got to show four houses on Monday. She stood up and went in. She knows we all take cream. Well, let's practice it anyway, Everett said, so we don't waste the trip over. He turned on his amp and ran through his tuning. Dawson held up his hand. More. He told me that he'd given the song two other times. Now he was almost whispering. Sixty years ago, he gave it to Hickam a clue. He gave it to him on the gangplank of the treble clef on the night in question. Really, Everett said. And he gave it to one other band. Blue Iron, I said. Blue Iron, Dawson said. They played it that night in Tahoe, and then they got on that plane. Let's see that, Everett reached for the paper. No, let's decide. Ramona came out with a coffee tray. The guys stood to take their cups and thank her. We weren't the kind of band to which anyone ever brought drinks. Did you Google this guy, Venezuela? I did. He was their manager. He disappeared the night of the crash. Jesus, Everett said. Burning man. I know, Dawson said. He looked really tired. He looked burned with fatigue. 
If we play the song, our guitar will lie on the dark, icy bottom of Lake Tahoe. Let's just play the song, I said. The thing you've got to remember about the USS Maine is that regardless of what blew it up and sank it on the winter night in 1898, it was going to be the match that started a war. We finished our section on the Spanish-American War, which is to say everyone in my class remembers the year 1898, but not another thing. And after two class debates, 40 posters, one paper, one specialized vocabulary test, and a hasty skit, we're moving on to the Bull Moose Party and the first Roosevelt. In a week, we'll have teddy bears in every corner of homeroom. As I start class on Wednesday, on the Wednesday before the blister centennial, Boyd Marlin raises his hand and says, we're going to see your band on Saturday, my family. My mother says you're a survivor. I look at him, <laughs> and I can feel I'm nodding, accepting the compliment. It's not you're a rock star. It is you're a survivor. I'll take it. Is it a barbershop quartet, Gloria never says? No, Gloria, I say. There's only three of us. On the way up the canyon roads to Blister, Dawson lays it all out. If we play the song in public, we will be cursed. We will enjoy success like nobody dreamed, but we will be cursed. This is our last gig. It's not like our career has a trajectory other than straight down. Play it, Ramona says. She's driving because evidently the band is drinking. Dawson bought a six-pack of Avalanche, the lager from Spillway Junction, and a bottle of old rigmarole, which is labeled brown whiskey for a reason. You don't care if we're cursed, I asked her. You know what a curse is, she says. She breaks too short in the hairpins on this horrid road up to the village of Blister, a town built where the first wagon trains failed as they came into the mountains. They used the boards from their wagons to build the first building in town, which was a saloon. A curse is always different than you think. You think you see it coming, but it bites you from behind a day before it's scheduled to arrive. You think, oh no, I hope I don't get cursed, but in fact, you already are cursed. You want something, and then a year later, your house is full of stuff, like a built-in beer tap and putting green, and that's the curse. The curse is not some midnight plane crash. Ramona rounds a tight corner and honks at four deer who stroll like tourists across the road, the only level place they'll be all day. The curse is that you play the song and people like it, they love it, and you make a ton of money so that you can get big cribs, and you have to start calling your house your crib. And all it means is that if you're going to watch the ball game, the walk from the fridge to the big television is 40 more steps than it is now. That's the curse. There's people around all the time and you don't know how much to tip them. And you have to play that song everywhere you go. And if you don't, people will swear at you. And those too are curses. And when you try to play one of Everett's new songs, like the one I love about the two people walking on the beach and the guy's footprints keep disappearing, people will scream at you to stop. And that is a curse. But you guys, you're not going to get poisoned or bombed or taken by a flood. Watch, watch, Everett says, pointing at the two people crossing the road in front of us with their cameras like deer, headed for the cliff edge shoulder. I've spared you, Ramona calls to the couple. And thank you, ma'am, the guy calls after us. They're going to get a picture of the whole world if they don't get run over. From that tight mountain corner, you can see all the way to Bashful, the desert oasis way east of Reno. I like where we live, that you can get out of town. So, Ramona finishes her speech, play the song. This is our last gig, Everett says. He lifts his brown beer bottle. Last gig, I toast him. Last gig, Dawson says.
The guys are riding in the back seat, and I look at them. In the far back is the drum kit and the instruments, one last time. Deer devils for one last time. I never drink when we play, and two beers in this altitude has about fried me. There have been blessed times with this band, going back to when we were too small for the instruments. We grew up doing this, I call out. It's okay, Ramona says. Last gig. You can do guitar lessons on the weekends. Pass the music on. I've already given a few lessons to the neighbor kids, and it makes a good Saturday. It doesn't even feel like compromise. Ramona, I lean over to her. Yes, dear? Who was the seventh? Who saw you naked? You, she says to me. I counted you twice. I should have counted you 7,000 times. What, Dawson says, what's that? Nothing. Well, I'm telling you right here, if we just kick ass and the big record producer who happens to be back because he was born in dear old blister offers us a 20-page contract and a midnight plane ride to Frisco after we play, one of us should stay behind to write the book. But we've got to argue on the airstrip, Dawson said, like I'm going, no, I'm going. Or we all get in and they're about to take off and one of us remembers he can't go. Right, that's good. Because of something, Dawson says. Because he forgot to go out to the desert and name his horse, Ramona says. That's it, Everett says. Make him stop the plane. He needs to see a man about naming a horse. And what happened was that the song from Burning Man turned out to be a terrific rollicking ballad with a ten-ton shadow and a seismic refrain, which we tromped through with big boots. The whole show was simply the best we'd ever known. We played like savages throwing glass chairs at each other in a golden palace the night of the fire. We didn't breathe. I was one sheet of sweat, and I could see Dawson shining on the drum stand. We were tighter than new braids on the princess. It was all unspeakable, like spray painting the time machine and getting paid by the hour. I could go on. It was the reason we ever tightened the first guitar string so long ago. I saw a few of my students in the assemblage, and their faces were like the first blank tablets grabbed up by the poets of old. When the last note fell and its pieces broke and scattered, sizzling like thrown coals, a silence stepped up and claimed us irredeemably, irrefutably, forever and ever, and we knew what we needed to do as if we had been instructed by that dog that Dawson met in the desert. We packed up the van for the last time as the Deer Devils, and we drove down the canyon with Ramona at the wheel, singing the great songs of Judy Collins. Who does know where the time goes? The following Sunday afternoon, we took Benny's boat out into the center of Lake Tahoe, one of the centers, right there where California breaks once and for all, turning southeast in that beautiful obtuse angle, and we made our concession to the curse. We took my extra guitar, and we set it free there and watched for a minute as it twisted in the water deeper and deeper. I don't know who will ever play that song again, but I know that their guitar will eventually drop through a thousand shimmering feet of water in a mountain lake. Then we fished until the sun gave itself to the mountain range there at the edge of the world, and we rode for shore against the wind. None of us wanted to be on that lake after dark. Thank you.